Hey everybody, this is Mark Stein, lead singer, keyboardist with Vanilla Fudge, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller, and I am your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And I am so pleased today to have as my guest, Joe Bouchard, who was a founding member of Blue Oyster Cult, one of the great bands of the 1970s. They had a big hit with the song, Don't Fear the Reaper, which had a second life when it was featured in a very famous more cowbell skit on Saturday Night Live with Christopher Walken. We got to talk about that, I'm telling you. We're going to do another song fest as well with Joe. I love doing these song fests with my musician guests because we get to play music and talk about it. And nobody else does this kind of stuff on podcasts. My featured song that you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it again at the end, is called New York City Groove. It's actually the first song that I wrote when I reformed the band Project Grand Slam in 2015. Now, the reason I picked this song, I always try to have some connection with my featured song and my guest. This was a little tougher for me, but I said to myself, oh, wait, Joe is from Watertown, New York. And if I got it right, Blue Oyster Cult kind of made their grade at Stony Brook, New York. So I said, okay, New York City's close enough. Yeah. (laughs) Close enough for jazz, as we say. So that's the reason. Anyway, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, Mr. Joe Bouchard. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, it's an amazing thing when I talk to all these great musicians, and I've had some wonderful musicians on the show. First of all, everybody is still alive. Okay, that's the first thing. And Fantastic. everybody's still making music and you're making music too, aren't you? Yes. Yes. I just put out my sixth solo album and I'm working on my seventh solo album now. And I've been working with my brother on a couple of projects and he's got an album, double album that'll be out in October on our own record label. We got, a, we got a record deal in the middle of the pandemic. We got a record deal. A record deal with yourselves or with somebody else? Yeah, well, it started with ourselves, but we got okay. a distributor, Deco 
Entertainment, and they're distributed by ADA and Warner Brothers. Uh-huh. So this is the best our solo projects have ever done. It's It's been fantastic. And we're going to do more projects coming up. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a great outlet to, uh, you know, focus on the Bouchard brothers and uh, our, our creative outlets together and separately. Because uh, we've, we've been going, we've been playing a long time. I can imagine. From those high school dances. Yeah, let's talk about that. I always like to go back to the formative years with my guests. Was it always your dream to be a musician? You know, I think so. I think really goes, goes back to maybe junior high school. I knew I was, uh, you know, I guess maybe ninth grade. I knew I was going to have a, uh, I, it's the only thing I really loved doing was music. And um, uh, yeah, I definitely had my sights on a professional music career. I didn't know if I was going to be a rock star or who knows, you know, salsa star, <laughs> country star. <laughs> but I knew I was going to have a, 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 a life with music. Now, what about when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan? Was that like the magic moment for you? Well, not really, because we started before that. We had a band that did uh, The Ventures. I don't know if you remember The Ventures. Walk, Don't Run. Yes. And so we had this band. Nobody wanted to sing, so The Ventures were perfect for us. So we all learned Walk, Don't Run and... all the whole. We had the whole album. We played all of that stuff. Myself, my cousin... Luckily, my uncle was a jazz guitarist, and he had a couple of very nice uh, old Gibson guitars. They were young Gibson guitars back then, but uh, I wish I had them today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you, I remember the Ventures and Walk Don't Run. That was yes. a great song. I think they had that that cover uh, for their album with them and the crew cuts and holding the guitars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the era that came before everything exploded. Yeah. And we we did all the pop music that was on the radio back then. And then the Beatles came out and we said, hmm, I don't know about this Beatles stuff, you know? They're good, but, uh, you know, and the next thing you know, the next high school dance we played, we played all Beatles songs. <laughs> so it was, it took over and we had Beatle wigs. Come on. I swear. I swear. We had Beatle wigs. <laughs> we would do shows at high schools and yes, Cape Vincent high school. The girls would scream just like the Beatles. I said, this is it. This is this it. This is baby. a good job. Doesn't get better than that. You know, I never had a Beetle wig, but I did have the Beetle boots. I mean, you know, they were very cool. Beetle boots, yeah. Yeah, matching jackets. We, you know, the skinny ties. We we did all of that. All right. So I heard a rumor that when you and your brother were growing up in Watertown, you won a battle of the bands. Is that true? Yes. Actually, the town we grew up when, in was Clayton which is a small town on the river up there, on the St. Lawrence River. Uh, but Watertown was where the Battle of the Bands was. And um, we didn't expect we were going to win because there were some, you know, bands from the big city, Watertown. Schenectady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they were like the favored to win, but we had a little secret weapon, and that was we had an electronic tuner. We borrowed it. Uh, we have there's a there's a there's a dispute about how this worked out our band director said here take the the tuner 
and you can tune up backstage and so you can come out and just start playing right away all the other bands had to come out and tune up you know <laughs> but uh <laughs> and then years later it says yeah you stole that that tuner from the band from the band room but it was so cool you just plug into it so you, you had the edge with the tune yeah, huh? i mean go out there and slam them and uh you know all our friends came and you know it was uh it was uh it was, it was crazy with that we actually won first prize at the Battle of the Bands in Watertown, New York. So I got a story like that, too. I grew up in Queens, okay? Yeah. And uh, I played in a Battle of the Bands at the local church. And the way that they did it was they hung a microphone at the very top of the church spire, okay? And then they did, like, after all the bands played, everybody had to applaud. And whoever got the most applause was the winner. Yeah. So we had a guy that actually stood on somebody's shoulders and on the top of a chair and he got right next to the microphone. We and, had the same And that's thing. how we won. We had all the, the football team standing on the chairs going crazy. Yeah, it was it was a mic. I, there was something that was it was attached to an old tape recorder that had a VU meter on it. So it was right. scientific, you know. Those were the days. But we uh we won and and even to this day i don't know it's 50 years later or something like that my brother one of my younger brothers knows somebody who's still pissed off <laughs> they lost <laughs> triumphs lost and the regal tones won <laughs> they couldn't handle it huh oh couldn't handle it still carrying a grudge unbelievable no we we, we laugh about that a lot so all right tell me about the formation of the soft white underbelly which became the Blue Oyster Cult. Well, w the Soft White Underbelly started in 67. And I was a uh, student at Ithaca College through those years. So I wasn't officially in the uh, Soft White Underbelly. But during my college vacations, I would go down to Long Island when they had this band house. And we'd all jam. And I, I would jam with them. And then... Eventually, Soft White Underbelly needed some gigs, so I booked them in some clubs up in upstate New York, and uh, so we were we were really good friends. They had a deal with Elektra Records. Jack Holtzman signed them to a deal. Right. Elektra thought that they were going to be the East Coast version of the Doors. You know, the Doors were hot in right. California. You know, so uh, Soft White Underbelly were being groomed to be another doors but it never happened the album didn't come out da, 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 you know they got dropped from the label the week that i joined the band they got officially dropped from the label and i was ticked off what can i say what well can I welcome say? to the band <laughs> yes you know that the music business back in those days yep so you know it took us about maybe a year or so after that we did some demos we uh, shopped them around. The first set of demos, nobody liked. You know, we met this guy, David Lucas, at a, a studio on 46th Street in Manhattan. And he would say, I got nothing happening on the weekend. Come on in and do some demos. So we'd do some demos in David's studio. And then uh, the, nothing happened with the first set of demos. So maybe a couple months later, we did a second set of demos. And then we started to get a little a little action on it it was a little heavier sounding and our manager sandy perlman 
he he definitely thought that the the music business was going in a in a more heavy metal direction basically because Softmore Underbelly was kind of Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, lots of long jammy songs, you know. So uh, where when we started the band that became Blue Oyster Cult, the songs got really tight. And, uh, you know, what can I say? The first album was done in a hurry in an eight-track studio. But uh, we had a lot of uh, people at uh, Columbia Records that, that thought we could do it, that we could, we could do something with it. Tell me about the name, because, you know, Blue Oyster Cult was one of those famous names that nobody understood. Okay. And I read something about, like, tell me if this is true. A former manager came up with the idea, and it's something about aliens landing on the yes. earth. We were is the aliens. Right? We were the aliens <laughs> that came to earth to change the course of history. These aliens would, like, show up at all of these junctures and important points. And this is our, our manager, Sandy's um, shtick. Huh? Yeah, definitely. And, <laughs> He wrote what was the oyster about? I didn't get that point. You know, I don't know. I didn't. I, in fact, back then, I didn't even like oysters. <laughs> now I love them. From his name, I don't even think he could eat shellfish, okay? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, uh, you know, we, we were arguing because we knew we'd, we'd been signed by, just about to sign the contract, and we didn't have a name because we weren't going to use the old name. We said, we got to, we come up with a fresh name for the band. And we, we argued about all these stupid names. So none of them were any good, but you never know because names are, are strange, you know. Right. So we locked our two managers, Sandy and his buddy Murray, in a room and said, don't come out until you, until you have the name. And whatever it is, we agree right now that whatever it is, that's what we'll do. So they they were only in the room for about a minute. They came out, said, we got it. It's going to be Blue Oyster Cult. We went, what? Blue Oyster, <laughs> what? Blue Oyster Cult? So, you know, I'm, I'm going like, how am I going to tell my relatives I'm in this band? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know oh, what? My uncles. It, it was different. There's no question about it. It was different. Well, right after that, Sandy went to the, you know, the record label and said, it's going to be blue oyster cult. The people in advertising loved it because it was like nothing else. Right. So they, they knew that they could run with it and make it happen. So, yeah. And it's, uh, it's held up pretty well over the decades. Good for you. Good Unbelievable. For you. All right. So I want you to fast forward a little bit. Tell me about the Reaper.
Okay. okay. It was a great song. Tell me who wrote it. How did you put it together when it came out? And then we're going to segue into that great Saturday Night Live sketch. Well, the first album, we had a single called Cities on Flame. It was a good song, but it just didn't hit. Uh, the second album, it was um, a song called Hot Rails to Hell, <laughs> which I wrote. And that, that was a good song. People love it, but uh, it wasn't a hit. Did you get ripped off when they did Highway to Hell then? No, but I, 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 I felt like I definitely influenced them somehow. <laughs> and then the third album, the single was um, Career of Evil. Real family type stuff for, for <laughs> AM radio, right. you know, Career of Evil, <laughs> which was written by Patti Smith uh -huh. and my brother. So that didn't hit. So we were, you know, the, and the fourth album was a, a live album. So we had a little extra time to do, to develop the songs for the fifth Columbia album. And um, everybody got four track recorders for their house. So everybody would bring in on a cassette what they were working on. And, you know, there was a lot of good stuff there. Like, mm, that sounds good. That sounds good. And then Donald, Donald Roser, also known as Buck Dharma, brought in a cassette with the Reaper on it. And we're going, what? I mean, I was convinced it was going to be a hit. Uh, it, it, it's very hard to find anything commercial in a band called Blue Oyster Cult, you know. How, how does it get on AM radio, you know? But Donald had the key. He had the key because it was a song that appealed to not only the guys in leather jackets, but it also uh, it appealed to their girlfriends. Right. And all of a sudden, our demographic, you know, from these sweaty guys that just got off the, off the, out of the garage working on their motorcycles to uh, guys bringing their dates to our shows and um because it's it's sort of a science fiction uh love story um you know uh kind of like the stephen king book you know and it's got a real nice melody to it yeah and it's it, it you know it wasn't like an overwhelm it wasn't a, a metal thing that was going to pound you into the ground right. like you said it, it crossed boundaries yeah it was it had a birds like harmony Right. We love the birds and um, that, that kind of thing with the arpeggiated guitar. And, and the only thing we had to worry about was like, don't screw it up. You know? <laughs> I mean, you got, you got something that's so like a, like a jewel, you know, that, you know, you came to a rehearsal. We, we, we took it. We, we were on tour in Europe. We had our first European tour. So a lot of the, people from the record label over in Europe, Germany, France, they would come and we'd have these little parties and say, hey, what are you working on? Well, here. And we'd play some of the demos and they'd say, oh, that's nice, nice. Then they put the Reaper cassette on and it was like, wow. I mean, you know, it was just, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was it. bound to happen. It was you bound to happen. All we had to do is do it right. I saw a little video that your brother did probably not too long ago. And he was being asked about, you know, the cowbell thing. And, you know, it was interesting because he pointed out that when you recorded the original, yes, you had a cowbell, although he thought it should have been a triangle at first. He said he got persuaded that the cowbell made sense. 
but the cowbell was really under recorded in the final song it, it wasn't blazing in your face and it was when it was mastered for vinyl it was even quieter you know once they the the trick was that saturday night live got picked this up on this because when they mastered it for cd all of a sudden that cowbell started you know, you could hear it it wasn't under a pile of mush it was, it was it was it was right there and you put the headphones on it was like oh wow there's a cowbell in there so you that think that's where the idea came from <laughs> that, oh absolutely ah because i was wondering where, where would will ferrell have even heard the cowbell because it was under mixed like you said yeah. no they they had put out a repackage in 2000 maybe it was uh, 1999 around then and it was called don't fear the reaper the best of blue oyster cult and that for certain had more cowbell than any of the anything that you would have heard back in the 70s so how does it feel to be part of probably the most famous skit in the entire history <laughs> of saturday night live i mean i know people talk about a cult thing i mean forget blue oyster cult this is like saturday night live more cowbell cult. we we wanted to be on the show you know it was a great way to you know be seen by a lot of people and it never happened it never happened so then they do this thing with the five comedians playing blue oyster cult and like it becomes bigger than if we had played there it's much bigger than if we had played did there. you know that the skit was going to come on no no i missed it i was watching something else so they didn't come to you guys for permission or something like that no in advance? no no they just it did it total huh? surprise total surprise i got the message the next day and then i i watched it you know when they rerun ran it a couple weeks later and um yeah the rest is history we're going to play a little bit of that skit underneath a portion of this interview because it's so Terrific. All right, guys, I, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. By the way, my name is Bruce Dickinson. Yes, the Bruce Dickinson. And I got to tell you, fellas, you have got what appears to be a dynamite sound. Coming from you, Bruce, that means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're Bruce Dickinson. This is incredible. I can't believe Bruce Dickinson digs our sound. Yeah. Easy, guys. I put my pants on, just like the rest of you, one leg at a time. Except, once my pants are on, I make gold records. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Fear, don't fear the reaper. Take one, roll it. All right, one, two, three, four. Come in here for a second, please. That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> so, let's take it again. And Gene, yeah. really explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. 
explore the space. Okay. I like what I'm hearing. Roll it. One, two, three, four. It doesn't work for me. I gotta have more cowbell. Don't blow this forest, Gene! Could be so selfish, Gene. Can I just say one thing? Yeah, baby, just say it. I'm staring here, staring at rock legend Bruce Dickinson. The cock in a walk, baby. And if Bruce Dickinson wants more cowbell, we should probably give him more cowbell. Say, baby. And Bobby, you are right, I am being selfish. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. And I'd be doing myself a disservice and every member of this band if I didn't perform the hell out of this. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Not, not only is the cowbell thing great, but Christopher Walken as the you know, the, the producer in the skit was just magnificent. I've, yeah. I've seen and read that this thing has followed him around. It doesn't yeah. make a difference that he's been in the deer hunter, all the other things he's done. It's more cowbell. Yeah. And it was, it was the last thing on a Saturday night. It had been, I think they were supposed to do it maybe a couple of weeks earlier, but it was always cut at the last minute. So they didn't even think it was going to happen. So they're really, it's the end of the night. They're really loose, you know. And then Will Ferrell puts on this ridiculous T-shirt that's way too small. Some girl's T-shirt. And, uh, oh, my God. It was so, funny. yeah. But here, let me set the record straight. Yep. I think uh, that Horatio Sands does a great job of imitating my head bob. <laughs> I, would, I would do this head bob thing. Okay. And and he must have seen it, either saw, seen us live or, or on a video or something, because I always had this bobbing head as I'm playing the bass. But on the other hand, I was, uh, and I was chunky for a time back then, but I was never that fat. <laughs> but thank you, Horatio, hey. for, for attention to detail. That's it's such an amazing story how that whole thing got put together and it launched your career again, didn't it? Re restarted the career basically since the nineties were not uh kind to our music. It was grunge era. It was before that there was the new age, you know, um, you know, English music. Uh we we did a bunch of videos for MTV. The only one they played was Burning for You. We we did five videos for MTV, but you know we we got lucky with one. That's okay, you know. Uh, we never did a video for the Reaper. I don't, you know, just never seemed to be, the, never never was a call for it. I guess. And um, uh, so the '90s were kind of like you you had to be on MTV. You had to have that movie star kind of look, you know. So things started changing in the 2000s, you know. And and uh, up to up to the current day, you know, 
things are very good for the band. The catalog still sells great. And, uh, you know, get to do all these other... Uh, I, I can finance. <laughs> I can finance these other projects with the royalties from Reaper. <laughs> Isn't that nice? All right, we're we're kind of into the song fest that we have been planning here because we've we've now heard the Reaper and we've done the Saturday Night Live portion of it. But you mentioned "Burning for You," which was another big hit for the band. Tell us about that. Well, and that's another Donald Roser song. But the lyrics were, uh, Donald did all the lyrics for Reaper and uh, and the music. Lyrics and music by Don Roser. For Burning For You, we had these lyrics. We had a couple of guys that would just give us lyrics and they would just be hanging around at our, at our band house. And there'd be a, a stack of like papers, you know, on the piano and anybody who wanted to write these songs could just grab a grab some lyrics they're usually pretty ridiculous crazy hilarious stuff you know but once in a while there would be a a lyric that you know would would uh, really connect and burning for you was one of those so i picked it up and i worked on it and i had my own version of it and i said oh yeah this this could be good and then uh then Donald picked up the same lyric, <laughs> and he did his version of it. And uh, I said to my brother, hmm, I think Donald's version's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot better. It was really a lot better. And uh, that's, you know, that's how that, how that came about. We, we had a new producer for that song, um, Martin Birch, who was an English guy who did all the uh, Deep Purple. And he was a bass player, too. Really? Yeah. And and so uh, I think he really got one of my best bass uh, performances on Burning For You. And uh, the whole band played good. And we did, he, he was old school. Everybody plays together. You don't go back in and fix up mistakes. It's, it's really, he goes for the live feel. And not to mention, he's a, he was, he passed away just about two years ago, uh, sadly. But um, mm-hmm. he was a tremendous engineer, you know, responsible for all those great Deep Purple records. And he went on to do Iron Maiden, had a long career. Fantastic. So let's go to the next one. This is a song that you wrote, if mm-hmm. I understand correctly, called Astronomy. 
Yes. Come, Susie, dear, let's take a walk just out there upon the beach. I know you'll soon be married and you want to know where winds come from. Well, it's never said at all on the map that can read. Behind the clock back there, you know, at the four winds bar. about that well that one uh is another one of those situations where the lyrics were sitting on the piano in the band room and i found these lyrics and i said is anybody working on this and then no and i said okay so i these were uh, lyrics by sandy perlman our manager who you know and they were sort of part of uh his whole story about the blue oyster cult and what later became the Imagino saga of, uh, you know, kind of a uh, mythological history uh, story that he that has has taken on another life. But Astronomy was one of the key songs. Now, so I pick up the lyrics and I'm saying, well, this is good and this is good. But, you know, the the third line was the clock strikes 12. I said, no, no. So I'm going to take the third line and put it up to the top because that's how you start a song. The clock starts 12, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I messed around with the, just by alternating some of the lines in the lyric. And then we had a band house that was uh, out on Long Island. And it was right near a beach. So I went for a walk on the beach. I'm walking on the beach and I'm thinking... You know, just a sort of a, a phrase. Right. And I so about fifteen minutes I come back to the band house and I say, I got a song <laughs> Walking on the Beach <laughs> called Astronomy. And uh here's where it gets a little fuzzy because it wasn't really completed. I knew it was gonna be a minor key, you know, and I knew it had this melody the opening melody, uh, but I didn't have much of the arrangement. So my brother came in and worked on the arrangement 
and came came back with a whole a whole uh, epic thing. Uh, had different sections in the song, so um, that came out on our third album in 1973, 1974. I mean, around that time, and it never was a single. It was a a popular song with the fans. You know, you have those fan favorites that you know they'll they'll they just love that song, and it closed the third album of the Blue Oyster Cult, which was a very good album. So, to make make this story longer, <laughs> you know, I was working in a publishing company doing music books. This was after I left Blue Oyster Cult. It was one of the things I did. And uh, so I had this job in a publishing company. It was kind of interesting. I learned all about how books are made, and I wrote, I wrote about five books for Alfred Publishing, and... They still sell. They send me royalty checks on the books. So I'm I'm doing my job here at the at the office, <laughs> and I hear that Blue Oyster Cult or that that Metallica is going to cover a Blue Oyster Cult song, and I say, well, it's probably one of the usuals, you know, maybe Reaper or something. And then I find out it's Astronomy. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. Metallica is going to cover Blue Oyster Cult, and it's going to be astronomy. So the first thing I did was quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> Your I ship has come in. Job. I quit my day job. And it changed my life. It really changed my life. It made me realize that I really had to get back to writing songs. I had... I, I went in a lot of different directions after uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, I went to uh, the University of Hartford and I got my master's degree in music, which was really good. And I was writing music for symphony orchestras and string quartets and brass quintets and stuff like that. But once I got that Metallica cover, I said, I should be writing songs. So how did that come about? I mean, did, were you friends with Metallica? Did you know that they were thinking about doing this? My brother knew Lars and the rest of the guys very well. I didn't, I didn't really know them much. I think I, I met the bass player. I met Jason Newstead once. Really great guy. And, you know, he, he, he says, oh, you, you meant so much to me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. So... Uh, and then, you know, uh, a year later, they put my song on this. They did a whole album of covers. They did, uh, you know, uh, Thin Lizzy. They did um, Bob Seger, Turn the Page, was one of the covers. And they made a double CD out. Well, they sold 5 million CDs. That's the kind of numbers that uh, that they get. And, like... I, it was okay that I quit my job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that, that kept your bank account full, I'm sure. Yeah, and I started writing more songs. And then, you know, I've been putting out a lot of songs since then. Yeah, it's a little over 20 years ago. That's a very cool story. Have a surprise like that. Yeah. So what, what's in the future for you? Tell me what you're doing. And are you doing it with your brother? And where can yeah. people find you and all of that? Yeah, joebouchard.com is the uh, website. And I have a band with my brother now called the Bouchard Brothers, where we uh, recap some of our greatest hits and, and our greatest new hits. Wait a minute. You're not calling it the Bouchard Brothers cult, huh? 
<laughs> hey, that's an idea. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's just the Bouchard brothers, and it recaps a lot of the, the, the stuff that we've been doing over the years. We started this record label with, like I said, distribution and all that, and it's been great. We've been writing songs, and, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a, a, a need. Uh, the fans just, they want the, they want the stuff. So I'm working on my seventh solo album, my, my brother has got a, an album coming out in October. That's going to be a double album. It's a follow-up to his album called Reimaginos. And uh, I, I play, actually, I play trumpet. I actually play a lot of stuff. Trumpet, guitar, uh, sing, sing a couple of songs. We co-wrote a song. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really going to be uh, a fantastic, I'm blown away by it. He, we we just listened to the mastering this past weekend, and uh, it's it's a great great album. So that's coming out, and then my album will be out early in twenty two. I'm working with Mickey Curry, who's a great drummer from uh, Brian Adams, and he did Hall of Notes. And he's an incredible, incredible drummer. So you know. All right, you got plenty of irons in the fire, which is really great to hear and to see. Yeah. We have been talking here with Joe Bouchard of Blue Oyster Cult, and now he's uh, an independent record maven with yes. his brother. A mogul. A mogul. A record right. mogul. <laughs> the Bouchard <laughs> Brothers Cult that's coming down the path here. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast, Joe. I appreciate it so much. Well, thank you for having me. Here are my key takeaways from my interview with Joe Bouchard. Life can be full of surprises. Think about how Saturday Night Live, out of the blue, did a skit on the Reaper, which sent Blue Oyster Cult into orbit. And then Metallica took Joe's song Astronomy and covered it. He could never have predicted either of these life-changing events. So keep doing what you love and do it well. You never know what's going to happen in life. And we're going to now listen again to the song that started this. It's my version of a song. It's, it, it's not just my version. It is the version of a song that I wrote called New York City Groove. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.